Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Really grateful for this community. Are you guys grateful for the Mountain community? I am. I'm grateful for our worship team, our leadership. I, I have so much fun. I love this community so much. Uh, and if it's your first time or you're newer, I have a wonderful wife, which you just met, Jessica. I have a son, Brixton, and three girls, Brightly, Presley, and Monroe. And they are outrageous, outrageous kids. I love them so much. I uh, love our, we've got an incredible kids community, uh, youth group. Uh, I'm just so blessed by our community. It's really, really amazing. Uh, and if you like having fun, getting connected, uh, I like to climb. Uh, I like uh, walks on the beach in April. No, I, uh, dirt biking and all this stuff. So it's really fun. We just try and do life together. Love you guys so much. Uh, we're talking about uh, <clears throat> Deep Wells, which is a series on family. Uh, it's been really exciting. I really love to preach. Uh, and so here we go. We'll be in Genesis 26 uh, and 1 Corinthians uh, 3. Uh, so Genesis 26 and 1 Corinthians 3. We've been talking about Isaac's wells that he dug and then <clears throat> redug uh, some of Abraham's wells. So today we're going to actually take a really closer look uh, at three uh, of the wells in specific uh, <clears throat> in Genesis 26. Uh, and so you'll be able to see a trend here as we're talking about it. Uh, and the third well uh, that is found is the well of Rehoboth, which is made room. Isaac recognized that God made room for him. Uh, and so if you look at the translations there, it's a really cool well, uh, especially after the other two wells, which were a well of conflict or strife uh, and or the well that he tried to dig that had conflict and strife that met it. Uh, and the second one being a well that had accusations met there and conflict met there. So uh, just a quick consensus. How many of you guys have pretty substantial conflict in your life? Anybody have relationships that have some substantial conflict? How about accusations? Any accusations? Does anybody want to fess up to being the problem in the relationship? <laughs> I like it that we always ask like a, some kind of victim question, like how many of you have been hurt? How many of you have been broken? Uh, but we rarely ask how many of you are really good at hurting people? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's important to look at um, because it's easy to see ourselves as, say, the wrongly accused, but it's much harder to look within and see that perhaps we have some Pharisee Sadducee tendencies uh, where we, we throw sinners and uh, people uh, on the ground and want to stone them. I know it's pretty, uh, pretty colorful, but it's, it's something important for us to recognize how God partners with us. And this isn't going to be a teaching uh, or, or a sermon based on conflict resolution or teaching conflict resolution. Uh, there's beautiful teachings and scriptures of which we've talked about a lot. Uh, the process of working on conflict and conflict resolution. Uh, this is actually going to be focused on something entirely different, which is how to move on from places of accusation and conflict and how to allow God to bless you beyond those things. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And we're going to be looking at Isaac's life and also in 1 Corinthians 3 to see what this looks like. And so uh, we'll see in a place of uh, the first two wells, uh, Isaac uh, and 
Isaac and Sitna, and each well was come under contention. So Isaac seeks to reestablish his father's well, redig the wells of Abraham. And the first two times saw conflict and saw accusation. So this is important to recognize because he then leads him to another place. And so Isaac actually meets defeat and failure. And oftentimes we come to this conclusion in our head that if God calls us to a thing, it will then mean our certain victory. Uh, and at times that's very much the case. God will call you to something and then he'll allow you and or he'll cause you to be prosper in it. But there's also something else that God teaches us in maturity that we don't have to win everything. Uh, and that if God continues to bless us as we go forward, whatever we lost is irrelevant because the blessings of God are greater than the curses of man. And this is an important lesson to learn because men can be powerful. You see the Israelites in Egypt and you see that Pharaoh was tremendously powerful, had rulership over them. Uh, but what Israel learned was that God's power is greater than the power of Pharaoh. And this could have been, after generations of slavery, a very hard thing to imagine. That God's power was greater than that of their oppressors or of those who held them captive but it's very much a fact and it's very much a truth. We just don't always understand it until we start to walk it out with God. That loss is, is painful. That loss is challenging, but it's not the end of the story. So when you learn to experience conflict and especially loss in that place of conflict and continue to follow God and continue to dig wells or redig wells, uh, finding new resources, finding new opportunities with God, then you learn to truly trust in God rather than resources. And this can be tough because if you've worked hard for something, if you've accumulated a certain amount of power, wealth, or influence, uh, or opportunity in something, to lose it can feel defining. It can feel like your identity has just been changed and shifted, uh, and you don't know who you are anymore. Uh, I remember going from basketball as an athlete to ministry, and it was a shift. I had to learn uh, a lot of different things, uh, especially I had to learn how to relate to creative people because I was an athlete. So as an athlete, you learn to feel no pain. Uh, you, you learn to uh, not recognize any of your feelings uh, and or give them any place of admission. Does anybody else recognize this place? Was anybody raised this way? As an athlete and sometimes in other uh, industries as well, uh, maybe in construction or in the military, you, you're taught to suppress all of your emotions that would cause you to stop or quit. So I was trying to teach my son the other day uh, how not to quit. Uh, and he, so he's eight years old. And so we were playing football. And, you know, I told him to do something and it ended up that he got hit in the stomach as a result of my tutelage. So I was like, hey, man, don't move away from the ball. Stay there, look at it, and catch it. And so I threw it, and it hit him in the stomach, you know. And he's like, you told me. <laughs> he felt so betrayed. He's like, you told me to do this. I was like, yeah. So he... So he, I, I, we started to have a, a, a talk about quitting after because he quit. 
He's like, I'm done. <laughs> this is a silly game. I don't like football. He said, there's a, there's a point at the end of the thing, and it hurts. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So I started talking to him about quitting. I go, hey, man, there's a good thing, a really important thing to learn, you know. And it's that when you get hit with something like that, I completely understand it hurts. You know, I hug you, I love you. Uh, but also, you, you get back on the horse, and you, you learn from what happened. Uh, and you don't quit, because quitting means you don't get an opportunity to learn and grow from it. So stay engaged on it, learn from it, and grow on it. So we started to have that don't quit lesson, right? And, uh, and so it's an important lesson to learn. And, and in Isaac's situation here, he may have, he may have thought, right, when he, when he first experiences, okay, I dig this well. First of all, he got kicked out of Girar, and he goes into the valley of Girar, and he redigs his father's wells. And so in his mind, when he experiences contending over this well, he could jump to the conclusion and assumption that God wants him to contend until his foes are slain and defeated and the well is his. So he could have jumped to that conclusion. Uh, it's very much a selfish ambition conclusion, right? Like this is about me and me getting my resources and my needs. I built this thing. I dug this well. I worked for it. I, I, I. And uh, I think sometimes we get into this habit of thinking that God's will is perfectly aligned with our ambition. Like whatever my sentiments are, whatever my feelings and needs for my life, God's will, his power, his glory is obviously backing that. But if you study the word, if you read scripture, you and I can actually recognize really quickly that most of the time, us as people, as human beings, are needing to repent of our ambition. We're needing to take our desires and yield them to God and be aligned with his will, which means that our will needs to change, needs to be transformed. So Isaac, in his personal life journey, could be like, God, you need to defend me and you need to destroy these people. But God wasn't teaching him that lesson at that time. God wasn't doing that at that time. What God was showing Isaac is that, hey, go, wherever you go, I'll bless you. Wherever you go and you dig wells, I'll bless that. And if somebody comes and robs and takes from it, it's okay. Go to the next place and dig another well and I'll bless you there. And all of a sudden what you begin to see is that that same promise that God told the Israelites, which wherever you set your foot, I will give you that land. So whatever's in front of you, whatever's forward pressing will be God's promise and you can trust that promise to be fulfilled. And uh, oftentimes we, get, we have a real challenge with this place because if we have a poverty mentality, if we have a mentality that I really need these $10 that are to my name or else I'm going to have nothing. If we have this resource deficiency mindset, we won't trust God in the future to provide resource when we've lost the resource that's in front of us. So Isaac loses opportunity in Girar. He loses what's essentially a great opportunity, and he gets thrust into the valley of Girar, and his first two attempts to establish resource are completely demolished and destroyed. His abilities are taken. His, his resources are taken. So he goes to the next place, and here's why it gets really important for us. He goes to the next place, and he is successful in establishing a well that will be for him and his family and his community. And it's actually said in that place that he called it Rehoboth because it's an open place or room for all. And here's what we really have to engage on as Christians, as believers, as a church. 
is that we can get into this mindset that is very tribal, that is very coordinated to protect my interests and my ambitions, and that I could recruit people to my cause. And this tribalism, this humanistic thinking is very common of us as human beings. We're going to read that in 1 Corinthians because it's a tendency of us as humans to identify our needs and then to rally other people that have similar perspectives to our needs and our plight. And anybody that has a contrary one or one that would take resources from us is an enemy and we build gates and walls and territories. We become very tribal. In 1 Corinthians, it begins to point this out in a, in a new covenant model and way. And I think we'll be able to actually recognize it in our church culture landscape. And it says in 1 Corinthians 3.1, it says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Okay, so you see maturity and infancy as the paradigms right here. And it's important to see these things because it actually speaks to the, uh, to the picture we live in based on how we live our life around the resources and around the people that we're trying to reach out to. And it said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Don't you love it when the scripture says something like that? I really like it when the Bible is like, hey, by the way, you're of the flesh. And you just got to deal with it, right? And when you see scripture, how many of you guys have read a scripture and you're like, wow, that was painful and for me. How many of you have heard one of my sermons and you're like, he's talking to me. I like that. I like it when people come up to me afterwards like, man, I'm really grateful that you preached to me today. And I'm just sorry that everyone else had to sit through my sermon. And it's, it's really good, right? It's really good when, when the truth of God confronts our humanistic mindsets. They're called humanistic. I'm a human being, which means that it's very natural for me to act and think and organize everything in a humanistic way. It actually requires a God intervention in our lives in order for us not to be humanistic. Naturally, without God, you will build your churches and communities and groups and businesses and hobbies in a humanistic way. It's actually what's in your nature without God. Do you see that? Do you recognize that? Humanism is a really, really profound poison in church culture because oftentimes we build and we coordinate in a very humanistic way. And when we're talking about deep wells and digging deep wells, we've got to recognize that our tendency is to, deep, dig, deep, to dig deep wells that are based on tribalism and humanistic tendencies. You can even see in our church models, we begin to tribally gather. I mean, look at all the denominations upon denominations upon denominations. And you can't tell me that our church culture isn't humanistic. It builds itself on humanistic tendencies. And then if you look even a little bit closer, you start getting racially divided churches. Black churches or white churches or Hispanic churches. And we, we tend to, as humans, categorize ourselves and then fit ourselves into whatever categorical bucket we belong. Here's the thing. You and I can say, hey, it just makes sense, right? Prophetic people go to prophetic churches. Teaching gifted people go to teaching churches that teach the word. And that musicians and creatives go to worship churches that worship a little bit longer. And they have a little bit more fun in worship. It's a little bit more flowy, you know? 
And then those that don't like that flowy thing, they go to the church service that has 15 minutes of worship, buttoning up real quick, rehearsed transition. Next guy comes up, says some cool things about things going on in community. Next guy comes up and teaches a perfectly buttoned up sermon narrative that is to the script, to the word. And these churches, and we, we build churches based on these things. We build groups based on these things. And we, we, we call them churches of God but if we look at how we're actually designing them, casting vision for them, they are targeting a, a certain specific demographic. You got a young church, you got an old church. How many black people do you have in your church? How many Hispanic people do you have in your church? How many white people do you have in your church? Like, we start to think categorical and we start to think in these ways that is very tribal and very isolated. And why is this a problem? It's a problem because it's not the image of Christ. It's a problem because when, when Isaac is led away from that place of contending and accusation, he's led to a place called room for all. And room for all is an absolute threat to monospecific Christianity. That if you're a prophetic person, it'll actually challenge you in your concept, in your paradigms of how it all ought to go to actually learn to be more teacher-minded, to learn to be more structural. I remember when I first started getting into ministry, I was anti-structure in every way you could ever imagine. I wouldn't want to do themes because it meant that I had to plan uh, for four weeks to do that thing and it felt like a box. I hated structure. Anything that was a box and parameters and boundaries was the devil. And then as I began to mature, I began to see God as a teacher, not just as a free-flowing prophet. I began to see God as a person who reaches out, but also tends to the need of the family. And when you begin to see the full image of God, you begin to allow yourself to make room for others that have a gift in different things. And you actually begin to think of not only your leadership different, but also your life differently because you recognize your giftedness. You recognize your perspective, not as king, not as matched by the pastor in the room, but as actually something to complement somebody else's very different mindset. So what do we see in 1 Corinthians? We see that for, one, for when one says... Uh, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are, are you not being merely human? And what an interesting observation. Hey, stop being human. Uh, hey, listen, to, to, to run a church, to operate in a church in a humanistic way is an anti-Christ way. So, so Christ is no respecter of persons. Christ shows no partiality to a specific gift mix or a certain. So, so what does he do? He levels the whole thing. He levels the whole thing, and we're about to see how that happens. It goes, uh, for, I follow, for when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So right away, this should confront some things, and it's that uh, your pastor is nothing. This isn't the best church growth statement. Like if you go out and you start handing out flyers to the mountain church, and you're like, man, I'm really excited, my pastor's nothing. 
it's not the best way to go in terms of building a church brand or building a movement or building some kind of thing that's based on the gifts of some kind of person or people group. So all of a sudden, can we actually be a church that's built on Christ? What would that church look like? What would it take for us to be a church that was truly built on Christ, that was authored on Christ, and that did a really good job of making it very obvious every week that the value of this community is Christ and Christ alone. And that I may play a role, I may play a part, but even the part I play was given by God in assignment and in ability. You even just look at gifts of God. Ephesians 4 talks about Jesus goes to heaven, gives gifts to men. He gifts of God, which means it's not an attribution to your character. It's not due to your ability. It's not due to what you've earned in wages. It was a gift. So even your ability to do whatever it is that you think is interesting was a gift of God. So even in that ability, my ability to communicate, my ability to have a beard, you know, my ability to stand in this place in any kind of intelligent way and communicate anything is not a credit of my own, but it's a credit of God's. And so it's simple to say, like, look, I am nothing in this regard. And it's not just simple to say, it's important to say. It's important for me every single week to tear down the idol of Pastor Sam. It's important for me every single week to tear down the idolatry that is occurring in humanistic church patterns. It's important every single week for me to say, stop making our pastors, our preachers, our teachers, our evangelists, our prophets, our earth gods representing heavenly God. We're not earthly deities. We're not meant to be the poster child and or the image that people are drawn to. So we dig a little bit deeper and all of a sudden we see that there's a real issue with the way we've been coordinating and building our churches. Probably for quite some time. If you go back, it was even worse back in the day where the Bible wasn't even in layman's language. And so it actually, I think, has gotten a lot better, but we've got a long way to go in how we approach churches because we still very much go tribal. We go to whatever matches where we're currently at. We go to whatever we matches where we're currently at. And sometimes we go to where it's currently matches us in our creative propensity. Sometimes we go where, where others look like us in age or in race or in ethnicity, or others have interests like us. They like money or they like hobbies or they like being broke climbers that travel around and climb which when I started climbing was probably my number one goal is how could I just not have money and climb every day? But you start to think about this and you start to actually look at how we even start doing small groups and different things like that. It's very humanistic of us to go, hey, look, let's just gather those who look alike, sound alike, and are comfortable where they're at together. But man, if you really look at how Jesus builds us, how he calls us, how he actually challenges us, it's not just to reinforce whatever we already are. He calls us to his likeness. He calls us to walk with him. He calls us to the fullness of Heavenly Father. And he doesn't call us to partiality. He doesn't call us to partial recognitions of revelation. He doesn't call us to one gift. And just to express that gift, he calls us to being transformed into the image 
of God, not the image of our gift. He calls us to be transformed in the image of God, not the image of our skin or a personality type. I've seen every version of humanistic tribalism that you can imagine, and I bet you have as well. I mean, I study personality tests. I love them. People start to rally themselves around the personalities, and they start to even define their marriages, their friends, their families, their hobbies around who has a complementary personality type. Jess and I have studied it, and it turns out we're perfect. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? Isn't that interesting? Don't look it up. <laughs> Don't test that word. <clears throat> but it's very humanistic of us to begin to think this way, structure things this way, build things this way. And as, as leaders or as people that are in charge of cultivating and or have been uh, designated that honor, we start to buy into the power of humanistic approach rather than the divine approach. Because, you know, it is a little lofty for us to think that people are going to become like Christ. It is a little lofty for us to plan a community that's based on following Jesus. And what would it look like for every single one of us to walk with the Holy Spirit, to walk with God? I mean, some would say this is fictitious in fantasy world and you should just build a church that's based on humanistic tendencies. Hey, you know, people are just not going to read their words, so you got to go ahead and preach it for them. Hey, you know, people aren't going to serve, so you just got to make sure that that little bit that serves, you just got to take care of them, you know? Hey, people aren't going to give, so you just got to make sure that you reach out to the people that do give. Like, we start to think human tendency and we start to think in human ability, and we start to cooperate and plan and strategize based on the natural. And this is a problem because we then forfeit the faith it takes to operate in the supernatural. And I'm not, when, when I say supernatural, sometimes I think people go, oh, uh, he's talking about when people stand up out of their uh, wheelchairs. He's talking about when blind see, or he's talking about when some kind of feathers or gold fall from heaven. It's a sign. But I'm not just talking about those things when I say supernatural. You know what else is supernatural that we don't often associate with the supernatural? A life changed. Transformation to look like Jesus is supernatural. Period. Period. It's supernatural. When someone finds Jesus and says yes to a life with Jesus, this is supernatural. When someone's soul is saved, this is supernatural. When somebody's sin patterns are destroyed by God's love and they become like Christ in righteousness and holiness, this is supernatural. So when I say supernatural, I do talk about, and I do mean healings, physical healings taking place. But I'm also talking about salvation. I'm talking about anything that is outside the ability or the power of the natural. The natural. So what do we see in verse 11? It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I, I, I get so... I get so volatile about this whole pattern of building church brands that I think that it, sometimes maybe what we should do is just put Jesus everywhere rather than the mountain church. And we, we gotta, we're going to put a sign on the building, right? And last night I was like, what if we just like Jesus loves you or just I love Jesus? And if they're like, hey, what church is this? And we're just like, it's a mountain church, but we really wanted the loudest thing we say 
to every driver buyer to be, I love Jesus. Or Jesus loves you. I'm really not sure yet, but maybe we just plaster Jesus and Jesus' love everywhere. We don't promote the church, we promote the love of Jesus. We don't promote the life of a, a speaker, a teacher, evangelist. We promote Jesus. And what if we started shifting all of our church culture, inviting people to Jesus rather than church? Inviting people to be healed rather than being a member. Inviting people to be whole in Jesus, not just <laughs> behaving the way I want them to. I know it's lofty. I know it's probably even ridiculous. But I, I, I think, in my opinion, and I don't always say my opinion during a sermon, but maybe I do, but I think, in my opinion, this is a church worth pursuing. A church that loves God with all of its heart, soul, and strength. A church that can learn what it looks like to get past loss. A church that knows how to partner with people in a place of having been worn torn. A church that knows how to be accused, knows how to be <laughs> contended with, knows how to meet striving, knows how to lose resource, and yet still walk with God and be blessed in the next season. A church that then knows how to make room for others in a way that they didn't have somebody make room for them. See, what Isaac needed to learn was he needed to learn how to make room in a way that he didn't have room made for him. See, when you get made room, ideas starting to take place as you relate to resources differently, as you relate to your power and your prestige and your influence differently. Like, we've been aggressive about making room for different voices and people in this community, and it's for a reason. Like Tim preaches, not because I can't preach that Sunday or I don't want to preach. I love preaching. I could preach nine times a week. Easy. I love preaching. But Tim, it's important to make room for him because there's a grace, there's a giftedness in him, there's a maturity in him. There's a perspective that's important for the body. It's the same thing others as well. It's important. And even with our worship team, like we have a plethora of worship leaders. It's important that we make room. It may be different. It may even be somebody that you subjectively don't like their expression of preaching, teaching, or worship as much as the other guys, but it's still important to make room for them because this is not a popularity vote. This is not us trying to manipulate the masses with talent or persuasive words. This is an attempt to partner with the heart of God. This is an attempt to love people really well. This is an attempt at Ephesians 4 where there's fivefold ministry. This is an attempt at tearing down king-like cultures and churches so that the many can share their part. This is an attempt to make room for all when churches don't usually make room for all. This is an attempt to break partiality so that we can be whole. This is an attempt to drop bitterness, resentment, rage, and all the things that come from contention all the things that come from accusation, this is an attempt for us to drop those things and pick up the mantle of room for all. What does that anointing, what does that grace look like? Can we find it? Can we operate in it for real? Legitimately. Can we have all the races sit down and love one another? Can we have all of the political affiliations sit down and love one another? Can we have all of the, <laughs> all the genders? <laughs> 
Can we have all the hair color types, all the ages? <clears throat> when I'm saying these things, I'm not talking about us buying into some kind of political perspective that there's more genders than just male or female or buying into the political measures of Republican or conservative or liberal or any of those things. What I'm saying is these things are inferior to our culture of Christ. What I'm saying is that the love of Jesus can overcome all of these things. And can we truly stand in that place with Jesus? Can we truly move on from places of contention, places of strife, places of accusation? So there's two ways this has to happen, in my opinion. One, you've got to move past the places that you've been contended with and that you've lost and that you've been accused and you've lost. And two, you've got to move past the places where you were the one contending with somebody and accusing someone. You've got to move on from these places. If we truly want to see people have room to taste and see the goodness of God, to taste and see and experience the love of Jesus in this place. It looks like us lowering our judgments, lowering our prohibitions, lowering the things that isolate, alienate. we got to be really good at seeing if we are disingenuous in our love. One thing I like about when the adulterous woman was thrown before Jesus was that the Pharisees and Sadducees, according to what they knew, they were right. They were right. And when you meet Jesus, there's going to be about 4,000 things that your life has told you this is right. And when you're truly willing to hear from Jesus, you're going to find that he brings you to places where you thought you were right and it gave you permission to murder someone. But actually, he's going to call you to drop your stones. He's going to drop you, call you to drop your judgment, to drop the things that would murder that person symbolically or literally, and learn to move on. Learn to bless. If someone stole something from you, try something different where you give it to them afterwards. I remember one time our youth group, in the middle of the night, the night before youth group, Somebody broke into our youth room, and they stole our sound system. They stole our TVs. They stole everything. And I didn't even notice until about 10 minutes into being in there. I was like, something feels really different in here right now. And then I looked around. I was like, look at that. All the speakers are gone. The soundboard's gone. <laughs> it's like, that's wild. And at first, I was mad. I was righteously indignant, as Carmen would say. But then as I, everyone around me was mad, I was mad. At first, we wanted to pray prayers like God rob them of their sleep until they bring it back. <laughs> Give them no peace. peace. Peace is not for the wicked, God. So no peace, no peace. Lots of nightmares, torment, night terrors even, God. So at first, that was the idea, right? Like just disturb these, these villains, God, these enemies of God, just disturb them. And then something kind of hit in my heart. And I was like, you know what? There's another option here. I was like, what if we blessed them? What if what they stole from us, we just decided we're going to give it to them? We're going to give it to them so that we would be blessed as if we gave it. And then they would be blessed because it's no longer stolen property. So Isaac gets robbed of these two well opportunities. Real. He dug for him. He did him. This was wrong. This was wrong. But if you really look at it, this became a blessing to those people who robbed him. A well was important 
in, in lands like that. It was very important. So Isaac starts to learn something that is above and beyond selfish ambition. Our specific life metron of what we want and need and what we believe in. And when you lose, sometimes you could just learn to just bless the person that took it from you. God, I bless them. I bless them, God. May your face shine upon them. May they find you, Jesus. May they find your love. May they feel this as your loving act in their life. May they encounter you, God. We can stand in a way that makes room for all, even our enemies. We can stand in a way that makes room for all, even those who would want to steal from us and detract from us. Because ultimately, if our father owns a cattle on a thousand hills, what is it to us if somebody steals one of our cattle? I got like at least 999 more. They're not here yet, but God's a really good God. It'll come. Like when we, didn't, we no longer were able to be in that place and we had to come to this place. Like God made room for us. Like I didn't know. It was down to one day. I don't know what resource you need in your life, but I can guarantee you that trusting God is better than contending with man. That's what I want to invite you to today, for us to trust God with this place, with this church, with this community, for us to tear down these idols and these tribalistic mindsets that cause us to be so divisive, so against one another, so tearing of one another. James talks about, why is it that you war amongst yourself? Is it not these ambitions, these selfish, prideful, or passions inside of you that rage? Got to learn to lay these things down. We can't make room for all if we're raging against one another. Laying them down, making room for everybody. This is such an important part of God's heart. It has very little to do with the moving standard of God's character or holiness. God is holy, period. He sets the standard, and we don't change that. So when we make room for somebody, it's not compromising character. It's just loving somebody well. I think this is an important consideration for us to have. We're called to love. We're called to champion. We're called to speak the truth and love so we can all grow. You guys down for this? Can you stand with me? Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is located in Las Vegas, Nevada, with services happening every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you'd like to know more about The Mountain Church, please visit us at themtnchurch.com or watch one of our services on YouTube. Again, thank you for tuning in.